Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And today's question is... Can I get pregnant if... I know. Do you want to use the word magical here again? I mean, I've always thought that I just had like a small bazooka that like would go... Because that's kind of what it feels like to me. So this feels very affirming. So since we last recorded, I have been to Denver and back again for a very, very special occasion. I want to hear all about it. It was the 30th anniversary of not only the summer when you and I met, Mm -hmm. but the summer of this program called Avodah, which means work in Hebrew. So yeah, so that it was the 30th anniversary of our nine-week Avodah, which was seen as this like huge honor to be the 16-year-olds who had the glorious opportunity to do all of the dishes for the camp, to clean all of the bathrooms on camp. Mm-hmm. I will say that I I still retain some epic toilet plunging skills, which is a gift, I think, as an adult. I think it's also just the lack of fear. You know, like I can walk into a kitchen and see piles of dirty dishes and, you know, just mess everywhere. And I'm just like, you know what? And it's almost like, you know, one of those... ER doctor, you know, television shows where the person's like, don't worry, I'm trained as a trauma physician. Just give me a paper clip and a, you know, a swab and I will, you know, triage the hell out of it. I will triage the hell. And I'm like, you know what? Just give me some rubber gloves and a little bit of dish soap and it's all under control. And it's this complete, just like, I'm going to MacGyver this kitchen into cleanliness. (laughs) So, It was the 30th reunion, and for reasons no one can recall, we decided to gather in Denver. And about, I think, 12 or 13 of the original 33 of us were there. And it was an Mm -hmm. absolute blast. I mean, we could have been, you know, at the Radisson in, you know, Sheboygan. It didn't matter. It was just that we were all together and that there was a there was a bar. So we just had such a good time. Uh, and so there's a there's a not yet famous person who's named Rachel Sandler Stern, but I, I think she sh- everyone should know who she is. And she was in camp with us. And I met the two of you at the same time because you two knew each other from first session. I was a second session camper. And so this Avodah was this sort of dramatic merging of the first and the second session campers. And I have in my... It was quite a divide. It was quite a divide. Yeah. And so I have, um, I kept this really thorough diary. And so I have well-documented my sort of meeting of the two of you and my sort of awe at how close you two were and that you were always holding hands with each other. And I thought, oh, I'd like a friend like that. And um, so we, 30 years ago, sat on the porch of the Avodah building, which had guys on one side and girls on the other. And the shared front porch, we celebrated Rachel's 16th birthday. 
We had a big sheet cake from the dining hall. Well, I didn't realize till we were all there, but the weekend we happened to pick for the reunion was Rachel's 46th birthday. <gasps> yeah. No. So it was like this classic middle-aged experience, though, because now there are so many food allergies that, like, they, folks, got her, <laughs> folks got her a cake, and she's like, that is so sweet. I can't eat it. <laughs> so, like, our, our middle-aged gut. I can only have I the low-carb no paleo cake, please. <laughs> so, my first entry on the first day, yeah. I mentioned Friendly Ronnie. Oh, I just had so, and then it's also it's also noted. I just had a hug from Ronnie Hayon. <laughs> She's so nice and friendly, and also very close with Rachel Sandler. Oh. The two of them are always holding hands and talking, and I would like so much to be part of that intimacy. <gasps> oh, it's so pure. <laughs> so so pure. Shout out to adolescent homosocial love. Oh, like God, seriously. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but your earnest, your earnest teen self got you here. My earnest teen self got me here, and and my earnest teen self spent a lot of time thinking and talking about sex. Yes, and, and we all did. And so those are all those conversations are also well documented within um, my diaries. <laughs> Is this something that you're, are you going to share this with our listeners? Well, I, I only share that we had a conversation, these earnest little Jewish kids in the Midwest, about whether or not we thought premarital sex was okay. And I want you to know, Ronnie, you were opposed to it. <gasps> yep. You were opposed. I am horrified at my younger <laughs> self. <laughs> it was you and one other person were like, nope, 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 nope. And I think that, you know, in retrospect, um, there were so many conversations about sex and gender that we were not comfortable having with each other when we were 16. We were a sure. very loving, close-knit group, but nobody was out. Um, feminism was like a bold sort of identity proclamation. It was indeed. It was indeed. And so the degree of discomfort people may have had about talking about sex in anything other than this very heteronormative, of course, I'm going to marry another Jew and have, you know, mm -hmm. this sort of, the whole cultural framework within which, you know, that Jewish summer camp creates around the pair bonding <laughs> for future right? generations of Jewish kids, um, I'm sure put a damper on what could have been other kinds of conversations. But at any rate, no, we had a whole. Yeah, I think I was like, I probably was such a, so prudish because I was still figuring it out, right? Like I yeah. was quite sure that I didn't want to do anything like that with boys, but I didn't really know what that meant, like, in the broader picture. Right. So this actually segues nicely into what we were planning to talk about today, this whole question of, like, can I get pregnant if? Yeah. And so, like, one of the things that, if you're a person who ovulates, there's these questions of, like, what would I need to do to get pregnant? Mm-hmm. And how likely is it that I'm going to get pregnant? And if you're a person who ovulates and you're having sex with a person whose body produces sperm, you have a certain set of assumptions. Um, but if your partner doesn't, then you might have to think about, ask other questions or look to other methods, right, to, to actually get pregnant. So, 
Ronnie, one of the questions that you've told me you've heard in various forms from patients is, can I get pregnant from or can I get pregnant if, and then a variety of different scenarios that they um, might ask. And one of right. them you, you mentioned was a cis woman partnered with a trans man. So, yes. Yeah, so I was seeing this couple. Um, the patient was this lovely person who is interested in affirming their gender with testosterone. And they were there with their partner, who's a cis woman. And they had a lot of questions, as most people do, about, like, you know, what can I expect? And how do I get the testosterone into my body? And what sort? what do we have to do to get it? blah 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 And then the partner said, oh, I... I have a question. And I was like, yes, of course, absolutely. She said, this is probably a really weird question. I was like, bring it. I love those questions. And she said, can I get pregnant once he starts tea? And there was a pause where I had to think really intentionally about how I was going to answer this question. um, Because it felt it felt completely out of left field for me on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, I also want to always create this space where people can ask any question. So in, a, in that moment, a number of things happened in my brain. <laughs> one was, uh, why is this question being asked? And then, oh my God, what a f- testament to the state of sex head in this country. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, I don't know what kind of sexual relationship these people have, so I, I can't make any assumptions. So what I said was, boy, what a, what a great question, which is often the way that I answer these questions. (laughs) What a great question. Um, no, you will not get pregnant because even though, the external appearance of his body is going to change, he's still going to have the same organs inside. So he's not going to develop testicles that will then produce sperm. Right. Well, I just want to point out that you said, this is something I think is so typical for the way that you provide care. And I think such a model is that you said the first thing you did was think about why is she asking me this question? And that's the empathy. That's the trying to figure out where is this question coming from without rushing to judgment, without laughing, without Mm -hmm. um, in any way embarrassing this person for asking the question. So anyway, just, I think that's great. I think that that's your, I I love that that's your first instinct is to put yourself in the shoes of the person who asked. Well, you know, and I think about like how vulnerable that must have been for her to ask. And she probably never had anybody in her life who she could really ask those questions to, right? So, yeah, I and I get all sorts of questions about other other things from both cis and trans and non-binary people about what sort of activities put them um, at risk for pregnancy. And maybe that's something we can talk about in a future episode, kind of like specific specific things that we that I get asked. But I'm curious about kind of the history of our understanding of the mechanics of conception. So like, what the hell did people think was going on (laughs) in the days before uh, microscopes and inevitably awkward lectures from the gym teacher slash health teacher? So the whole question that your patient's partner was asking you about, you know, with testosterone, is there a potential for sperm production? 
The difference between testicles and ovaries and the role of ovaries in fertility has not been known for that long. And it's sort of really intriguing to see how scientists and physicians, until the last couple hundred years, speculated about what the ovaries did, what the role of the ova was. Mm -hmm. Um, So going back sort of a very quick historical overview, if you go back to the Greeks and the Romans, Hippocrates and Aristotle and other thinkers, they had this idea that there are two seeds. There's a male seed and a female seed. Um, And that both men and women have testes, but one has them externally and one has them internally. Oh. And that it's orgasm that brings the seeds forth from each of these bodies and commingles them, and they together create an embryo. So hmm. this idea that women, that a body with ovaries, or understood by these philosophers and physicians as women, produced a seed was sort of interesting because you think, wow, I guess, you know, they were having really good, these women were having all these orgasms in ancient times. That sounds great. Yes. It also led to centuries of assumptions that if a woman was raped and became pregnant, she couldn't actually have been raped because she must have orgasmed. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been able to get pregnant, which was an idea voiced by a, a candidate for the Senate as recently as 2012. Yes. So uh, it lives in certain quarters, but yeah. yeah. So this idea then that each seed has something to contribute was comes from the ancient world, from ancient medicine. But by say 1400s, 1500s, there was a new theory that there's something called an animalcule, like a molecule, but an animalcule, like a tiny little seed that has all of the the whole genesis of the human is within this little seed. All the parts of the human body in, minis- in like minuscule form within this little drop of life. Yes. And people debated whether it was the sperm or the mm. a substance from the female that contained the animalcule. The idea that it came from the female was mostly ridiculed, right? Because how could, how could that possibly be? Of course, I mean, how could a woman possibly provide the necessary? We are merely the vessel. And that was exactly it, that it's that this, the, the entire essence of the person is within the seed from the man, and then it, that is then just sort of grown, sort of housed, lives rent-free in the, <laughs> in the womb, and then, you know, comes out as a person. But they slowly start to realize what's happening in the female body is not simply a seed, but a little egg, right? That the ovaries are are creating these uh, eggs that um, are important to conception. But then they couldn't figure out when or why women ovulated. So one theory was, again, the, the sort of male-centric thinking here is fascinating. It must be sexual intercourse that sparks the you know, emergence of the egg from the ovary, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's all in response to sort of the male body that that sure. ovulation would happen. Or that maybe it was the semen combined with menstrual blood that created the egg, but really no wow. idea how the egg came to exist. Did it appear spontaneously like a thought uh, following vaginal intercourse? <gasps> I love that. Yeah. So the scientific revolution is only when medical science starts to recognize that, no, there is this distinct thing 
um, that ova or eggs are necessary for reproduction, that ovaries are not just internal testicles, that they are, in fact, distinct organs that function in a different way. They're doing more dissections, microscopes are getting better, and they can see Mm -hmm. more of what they want to try to understand. So, like, they could dissect an animal and see the small cluster of cells that had formed in a fallopian tube and mm. recognize that as, as a begin, you know, as, 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 I don't know what you call it, a zygote, sort of a little. Yeah. So even as late as the 1600s, 1700s, the best scientists in, in Europe believe that, yes, female anatomy is different. Yes, those bodies that have ovaries produce eggs. But they still think that really the eggs just sort of sit there waiting patiently for a male seed to arrive before they Mm -hmm. do much of anything else. Right. And it's only in the 1800s, so in the last 200 years, that scientists had a clear understanding that the ovary, the ova comes, come out of the ovaries into the fallopian tubes, that this is a preamble to menstruation. Um, So the connection between ovulation and menstruation has been understood for only 200 years. I will see I will see that understanding of ovulation and raise you the first visible evidence of ovulation. Oh, I can't wait. So, do you know when this happened? It's okay if the answer is no. I'm going to guess it was in the 1970s cuz a lot of sex research was going on then. Excellent guess based on context clues. However, the first photos uh the first visible evidence of ovulation 2008, Rebecca Davis. Oh, my God. Yes. Somebody uh, was having a hysterectomy done in, in Belgium, and they the surgeons kind of happened upon an ovary that was, that was ovulating. And I am happy to, to share with you pictures of this happening, if you're interested. Oh, bring it. Okay. So I can describe for our listeners uh, what... <laughs> please do. I was just going to ask you, please paint us a word picture, Dr. Davis, what you see here. All right. So I'm looking at this BBC news story from June 11th, 2008. And they're very helpfully labeled. There's a the surgical instrument, which had mm-hmm. been inserted into the uh, sort, of abdo- sort of lower abdomen. Um, something's pointed out as the egg, which is sort of this beautiful, glistening... Uh, looks very much, I was going to say it's egg-shaped, uh, this little golden glistening uh, orb. Little orb. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this big red sort of highly vesseled follicle out of which this egg is protruding. And then around it is the ovary. So this is like pretty dramatic. And I'm going to click yeah. next. And close up, I mean, this is like, this is like a rocket launcher. This is Isn't getting, it amazing? I mean, this is kind of what I always thought was happening. And then, you know, it, oh, kind of it comes out. I, yeah. It bursts out. No, it's like, it's, it's, um, the follicle's still there, but the egg is like taken off. It's like, a, it's been yes. launched. Yes. Oh my God. And then it's, and then it's off. And then it's, it's doing its thing. It is, it is loose in the pelvis waiting to be welcomed in to the fallopian tubes. Wow. Right. We will uh, we'll put links to this website in our show notes. I, you know, when I look at these pictures, things, <laughs> words that come to mind are like turtleneck. Like it almost <laughs> looks like a very 
red engorged turtleneck <laughs> with the egg just popping out of the top. Right. Or it also kind of looks to me like Cubert. <laughs> Did you ever play Cubert in the 80s, that video game? <laughs> We're really dating ourselves. Oh, we are so dating. But this is, it looks like Cubert has like a small pearl <laughs> that is just releasing out into the world. So, but I'm just going to say though that it's not. So this whole, even well into the 20th century, medical textbooks described sort of human sort of fertilization, conception, as this like romance, like the sperm, you know, the sperm are the ones that launch, you know, the, right. the, there's ejaculation and all these sperm are like running and they're racing each other to see which one can get further into the you know, body up through that vagina and th- <laughs> survival the of the fittest. Where are they running? And like the, there's like, maybe there's an egg and she's just kind of sitting there and she patiently waits huh? like Rapunzel in a tower. For- she's floating down the river in her inner tube, <laughs> just waiting. It's like very, she's like very passive. And I have to tell you, these are not images of a passive egg. No. This egg is like, blasting out and really quite, quite impressive. Yes, this egg is ready to go to the protest, right? <laughs> it is like... <laughs> this egg has thoughts of their own, you know? Yes, for sure. I know, I love these pictures so much. Wow. Right? I know. Do you want to use the word magical here again? I mean, I've always thought that I just had like a small bazooka that like wiggle. go... <laughs> Because that's kind of what it feels like to me uh, in my own experience of, the, of this on a somewhat, somewhat monthly basis at this point in my life. It yeah. has never felt like a, it's a thing, just sort of happened. I, was, I never thought this. You know, I was like, yeah. no, that's not, that's, that can't possibly mm-hmm. be what's happening. So this feels very affirming to me. You know, there is, there is a word for that pain that we have with ovulation. Did you know this word? Middle schmerz. Middle schmerz. Yes. Middle schmerz. Middle pain. Right? The, midway through your cycle, that pain. Yes. Okay, so now that I, I feel like I need to take some deep breaths and recover from the <laughs> incredible excitement of looking at photos, dramatic, mm-hmm. powerful photos of ovulation, mm-hmm. uh, to go back to this question your patient's partner had for you about now that her partner was going to take testosterone, sort of what would that mean in terms of fertility? So we know that this person won't be able to produce sperm from taking testosterone. But what would happen to their ovulation? Well, the very kind of like too long didn't read non-researchy answer is that probably they're going to stop having periods. And we think that also ovulation will become less predictable. (laughs) I think you'll notice that I'm using I'm choosing my words very carefully here because not having a period is not the same thing as being infertile. And yep. so you know the the researchy answer is that there was a study um what was that 2014 that looked at pregnancy specifically people becoming pregnant after using testosterone for gender affirmation. So Um, And it was very small. It was just 41 people. But they kind of looked at, you know, people who were on testosterone who presumably were amenorrheic, meaning not having periods, and then 
wanted to become pregnant ostensibly. And something like 80% of those people who had been on testosterone got their periods back within six months. And that, you know, that kind of tracks, you know, it can take three to six months for people's periods to stop. And it can take three to six months for people's periods to, to return. But 20% got pregnant while they still had not gotten their periods back. So they were amenorrheic from testosterone and they still got pregnant. So, you know, basically what I tell people is if you're going to be having sex with somebody who makes sperm and neither of you are interested in getting pregnant, then we need to use a reliable birth control method because not having a period is not the same thing as not being able to be pregnant. Amen. There's a lot, there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. I mean, one of the things I heard in an NPR story screamed and almost drove off the road and then reached out to you and you were like, oh, no, no, that totally tracks, was something that like 50% of American mm-hmm. women's, we have to look this up so we know what it actually is, but it was some very high percentage of pregnancies in the United States are, I mean, the, the language that was used in the story was unplanned. And I think you corrected mm-hmm. it as mistimed or unplanned, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and given the landscape of reproductive healthcare in the United States right now, it's just, let that sink in. Like yeah. how often people get pregnant when they did not intend to get pregnant. Like mm-hmm. it's, if it's something like 40 to 50% of pregnancies are either a person who planned on getting pregnant, but just not yet, right? Mm-hmm. Or had had planned to do it six months, a year, three years down the line, had no intention of getting pregnant at all. Right. Um, it's astonishing. To, I didn't realize that. I mean, for me yeah. as an adult, it was like, oh, no, I have to make a decision now if I want to get pregnant. And we've got to sort of plan for it and like do all these things to make it actually happen. Um, I didn't appreciate how often people get pregnant when they have absolutely no intention of getting, I mean, obviously I know that unintended pregnancies happen all the time, that it was like half of pregnancies Mm -hmm. blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, this is something that I, I encounter a lot. And just like you said, it has taken on uh, a really different tenor now since the Dobbs decision that toppled Roe. It's a, it is a really big deal. And so thinking also about why does it why does it even matter to know what can get you pregnant not only is it because abortion access is crumbling but also you know getting pregnant is a toll on people's bodies and so we want to make sure that we are taking good care of people's bodies when they get pregnant the answer to the question can i get pregnant from this is important because Rates of teen pregnancy are much higher for LGBTQ youth than straight youth. Well, I'll just say that, I mean, I think from your perspective as a primary caregiver, I can imagine, a, you know, a pediatrician or a nurse practitioner, uh, an internist, having a queer patient and thinking, oh, okay, so we don't need to talk about pregnancy, right? Like, this right. is this is off the table. This is a person who is having the kind, there are other sexual issues, uh, health-related issues I want to make sure I talk to this person about, but we don't really need to worry about pregnancy. And what I hear you saying is that there are, in fact, a really significant number of unplanned pregnancies among LGBTQ young people. That's exactly right. Yep. And among bisexual women, the rates of 
mistimed or unplanned pregnancy is actually the highest. That's the group of folks who have the highest rates of mistimed or unplanned pregnancy. I mean, why do you think that is? You know, I think it's probably a lot of things. I think that bisexual folks in some ways get the worst care <laughs> um, and probably the least support from various from their communities, right? So either they're not straight enough to be considered straight or they're not queer enough to be considered queer. I think that it's also really difficult for healthcare providers to understand bisexuality and understand that people's sexual health needs can change throughout their lifetimes. And I just think there's a lot of stigma around bisexuality. I feel like there's just like, like not, a, not a lot of believing bisexual people when they say they're like actually bisexual. Right. I think that what I've encountered, I've encountered a couple things. One is the idea that comes straight out of psychoanalytic theory and a lot of mainstream psychiatric and psychological thinking that we are sort of all inherently bisexual, but then we grow up and we mature and we, yeah. right, that that's a stage that it's very, that a teenage girl's crush on another girl or on a young woman is a very appropriate adolescent stage of, you know, a sort of preamble to this mature desire she will someday have for a man. Mm -hmm. um, so, as we think ahead to some of the things we're going to be talking about in future episodes, what kinds of other activities do patients wonder might make them pregnant? Oh, my God. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think probably the top, top two are toilet seats. I get a lot of questions about toilet seats as either conduits for pregnancy or conduits for infection. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of questions about bodies of water. Hot tubs, lakes, bathtubs, can I get pregnant from having sex? Or actually not even from having sex in a hot tub, more like if I'm in the hot tub with somebody else and they ejaculate in the hot tub, can I get pregnant from that? That's a very common question. I'm assuming the answer is no. The answer is no. Okay. Just the answer is no. Yeah. And I also get a lot of questions about like towels like, if I share a towel with someone, can I get pregnant if there's semen on the towel? I also get a lot of questions about, like, pre-cum or pre-ejaculate. Like, are there sperm in that fluid? Uh, the answer is maybe. So be careful <laughs> if, you don't, if, you know, if you're not planning to get pregnant. And then, you know, for, for trans femme people, there are, sometimes I get questions from them about fertility if they have partners who could get pregnant, whether those are trans mass people or cis women. And it's the same, I give them the same answer that I give trans masculine folks, which is just because your erectile function has gone down or the amount of fluid that comes out when you ejaculate has decreased, that does not mean that you're barren right? <laughs> or like sterile. So if you're going to be using that part of your body for sex and neither you nor your partners are interested in, in pregnancy, then making sure that you're using something for, um, for contraception is really important. And kind of going, going back to your earlier kind of thoughts about not understanding ovulation, I get a lot of questions about just like the menstrual cycle in general. Like, can hmm. I get pregnant if I have sex on my period? 
The answer is yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. Rare, rare, but yes. We need to bring back the like the movement from the 70s where people were like putting specula into each other's vaginas and like looking at each other's services and learning all about our anatomy. We need to bring it back. Uh, so, so one of the people I'm obsessive about right now is this woman named Betty Dodson who died about two years ago. And she created what she called, um, she had these workshops and a feature of the workshops was genital show and tell. And so there'd be a, the whole workshop was all women, all nude. And they, at various points, each woman would take, they would take a turn and she would bring over a mirror and like a little desk lamp. And the woman would sort of sit back on pillows, spread her legs and, and show her vulva and like pull back the labia and like look into her like vagina and think about and lift up the hood over her clitoris. And so, and Dodson, it's, you know, later on made some recordings of this. Everyone's like, ooh, ah, ooh, it's so pretty. Like they all get oh. very excited about everybody's vulva. And Dodson was trained as an artist. She's sort of a formally trained artist. And she goes, this one's very art deco, you know. And then this one's <gasps> oh, stop. Yeah, it's hysterical. It's wonderful. So she's so she was at the forefront of that. She also was like at the forefront of porn and group sex. And, you know, she got into she'd identified by the late 70s as a Butch, dyke, bisexual, lesbian, heterosexual, BDSM, you know, practitioner. She just was like, I'll try anything, like, because it's all great. Yes. Uh, yeah. And totally without shame. And you could see these women with her let go of their self-consciousness. Um, and she always starts by telling jokes and, like, putting people at ease. But, yeah, they're, they're all sitting there like, you know, oh, this one's very Danish modern. You know, sort of. Like, oh my God! Artistic discussion. Did of, she? Did she make artworks that that were that like were the Art Deco vulva? That's so wonderful that you ask. Her first solo art exhibition in 1968 in Soho was of huge six foot tall drawings of couples having sex, and she had friends pose. Some of them are of her, and people took a photo, and then she drew from the photo. Um, and there's some female couples, I think, but mostly male-female couples. Her next art exhibition, oh, I mean, she says that that first one was a huge success. But it was sure. also in answering people's questions when they came to look at the art that she realized the extent of most people's sexual ignorance. People were sort of casually making comments about is something deformed or not. And she was like, she realized she had work to do. Her second exhibit was of people masturbating. And it was far more controversial, except especially the images of women masturbating. Mm. Um, so she had much more difficulty with that. But in 1973, the National Organization for Women in New York City hosted a sexuality conference. And Dodson gave her, like, Kritiker, you know, her manifesto about if we want women's liberation, there has to be sexual liberation. Mm -hmm. The foundation of sexual liberation is the ability to, is masturbation. Like, you have to know what feels good to you, you have to be able to give yourself that pleasure to be a fully liberated person. And she was into encouraging everyone to get vibrators, everyone to, like, look at their genitals, um, to, wow, you know. what a hero. Yeah. And, and then the next day she did her slideshow where these huge, like, projected onto the wall vulvas, uh, photographs of vulvas. And she said she got a standing ovation. <gasps> but I think it is liberatory, mm -hmm. right? And so this understanding of what a vulva actually looks like 
mm-hmm. and the extent to which they look very different from one another, mm-hmm. you know, is is not information that's very easy to get. You know, I just bought this great book called Sex is a Funny Word. Have you ever read this book? I love and that book. It's such a great book. And I especially really like the section where they're talking about like how genitals can look different because they and they have all these kind of like cartoon drawings of differently shaped genitals throughout the lifespan. And I have a I have a dear friend who has twin boys who are curious about like what vulvas look like. And I was like, you got here, I'll just take a picture of the vulvas page <laughs> and send it to you. And I hit send and I was like, is that weird? <laughs> that I just took pictures of a bunch of different cartoon vulvas that I think we're just going to do it. It's fine. It's on. It's chip assailed. Right? Because usually there is the drawing of this is what a vulva looks like, right? This is what Mm -hmm. a female body looks like. Um, And what Dodson talked about, she says, well, I have really long inner lips. And so she Mm -hmm. said after her, she got married in her late 20s, gets divorced. She has this new lover, and the sex is great, and he wants to do oral sex. And she's like, no, 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 don't do it. I, I'm a, I don't want you to see because I'm, I'm deformed. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what are you talking about? Your body's beautiful. And she's, her story is that he had a big collection of pornography, of print pornography. And so he pulled open his pornography collection, was like, look at that vulva. Look at that vulva. And so that's where she was like, so he's like, long inner lips. It's just like something some women have. And she thought she had deformed herself from masturbating so much. Oh. And she said years of trauma over her body being sexually deformed disappeared in one evening of looking at images of other people's vulvas, realizing they were all different, and that what she thought was this, like, debilitating, grotesque feature of her body was not that unusual. So this becomes her mission. Not at all. Right, right, right. Not at all. And she talks Aww, about and when this she does is such a beautiful story. <laughs> when she does her workshop, she talks about like that whatever people's broader skin color, the genitals can be a whole variety of different colors. And that women are shocked by this. Mm-hmm. And they think again that if they have darker skin but a lighter vulva, there's something wrong with them, and vice versa. And sort of educating people about sort of the beautiful variety of what bodies actually look like. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that is also one of the one of the real I don't know what word I want to use here, but like one it's it's like a real privilege of the of my practice actually is to is to reassure people that their bodies are just are perfect the way that they are, right? And like it doesn't I doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter like what shape you are. Your body is doing a great job <laughs> and your body has gotten you to this place, right? And yeah, people carry around these like these ideas, these stories that they have told themselves about specifically around their like genitals and chests and bodies. And it's, it is such a privilege to be like, nope, it's fine. Just the way it is. You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. 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 So now I could go on and on about Betty Dodson. She's but she's the one who, who, and she goes in 2019 or 2020, she was a guest on Gwyneth Paltrow's Netflix show, Goop Lab. And oh, so dear. Gwyneth Paltrow's like, oh, today we're going to talk about vaginas. And Betty Dodson gives her like her death stare and is like, vulvas, <gasps> not vaginas, vulvas. And it's such like utter, like, who is this idiot? <laughs> 
talking to about sexuality who thinks she has any business, you know, hosting a show about it. Right. No, no shade to Gwyneth Paltrow. If you want to promote our podcast, please do. Yeah, right. Pr- promote away, but we will not sell jade vagina eggs in our on our podcast. Yeah, seriously. Um, we have different merch available. <laughs> <laughs> so go to our website. You won't find jade eggs for your vagina, but you will find T-shirts, <laughs> stickers, mugs that say things like front parts and back parts and that make uh, jokes about the public universal friend and as, as your BFF. I so, love it. Yeah. Maybe somebody out there who is a who's a better artist than we are can come up with a rendering of what an art deco vulva might look like. Mid-century modern vulva. <laughs> well, I can show you because she illustrated her books um, and labeled oh, the she art. Did. Yeah. So her best thing though is her take on the Vitruvian man by Da Vinci, but it's oh, a, yeah. a muscular female body. And instead of being within just a perfect circle, it's within a vulva. And where the woman's head is would be where the clitoris would be. <laughs> what a genius. Yeah. So um, I'm sure that that's a copyrighted image, but that would be pretty great to put on merch as well. <laughs> <gasps> or maybe we, we can just make underpants that say Art Deco on the front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or um, the other she said we're um, more Baroque. I love it. You've been listening to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Twitter at A Really Weird Pod. Rebecca tweets at History Davis and Ronnie at Dr. Awkward MD. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust, we additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening, and keep on asking those questions. <laughs>